Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to put in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe or see again, but they also pick one thing that they rather regret, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the journalist Eleanor Mills, who was the youngest ever features editor at the Daily Telegraph, aged just 26. She joined the Sunday Times in 1998 and became the editor of the Saturday edition in 2008, returning to the Sunday title as associate editor and a columnist a year later. In 2012, she became editorial director of the Sunday Times and the editor of the Sunday Times magazine in 2015. All pretty impressive. But if you think Eleanor Mills would stop at that, think again. She left the role in 2020, and on the 8th of March 2021, International Women's Day, Eleanor launched Noon, an online media platform and community for middle-aged women, which she talks about most eloquently in this podcast, along with several other quite surprising things. This podcast was recorded live at the Prima Donna Festival, the first time this podcast has been recorded in front of an audience. Hopefully not the last time. Anyway, here is the very impressive and rather lovely Eleanor Mills. Pink Floyd's playing in the background. So everything's right with the world. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Hello, thank you for coming. Um, I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and I do a podcast called My Time Capsule, which I'm now going to play the game of with the fantastic Eleanor Mills here. So, Eleanor, welcome. Hello, thanks for having me. Lovely to have you here. Yes, so we were discussing before we started about the fact that I'm annoyed that I can't become a queenager. (laughs) 
<laughs> we haven't come up with a male version of a queenager yet. No. And for those who don't know, queenager is um, my kind of rebrand of women in midlife. I thought we definitely needed something that was a bit more optimistic. Yeah. Um, and I think the kind of queenager gives a sense of that coming into one's wisdom and it being the prime of our life and having a new opportunities in a new phase. And I don't think we think enough about the later stages of women's lives and what they might look like. No, people don't credit experience enough, do they? Yeah, and I don't think it's just about experience. I think men, as they get older, are kind of credited with experience. Mm. They're seen as, you know, fine wine, improving with age, or like <laughs> silver foxes. Whereas the women in the culture are much more seen as kind of peaches, you know, one wrinkle and you're done. And that's <laughs> the narrative that I'm really trying to change. I feel yeah. passionately that that matters, not just to women um, at my age, I'm 51, but also to all the women coming up behind us. I've got two teenage daughters who are 17 and 19 and I want them and all their friends and all the younger women to look forward to being 50 as when they come into their prime, when they become the women that they're supposed to be. And I think the narrative at the moment is too much around women disappearing, vanishing, feeling Mm. invisible at this point rather than really embracing their power and all they can be at this point and being beacons to the the younger women. I don't think our culture values the wisdom of elder women at all. No, well, there's no doubt about that. You watch it again and again. You watch women being, in a way, pushed out of the whole of society almost. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I feel passionate about. So everything that we do at Noon, which is my website, noon.org.uk, is about changing the story that we tell about older women and saying we're not prepared to just be kind of pushed out and erased from the script that you know that won't do and I think what's also important is that there is a completely different kind of woman hitting this midlife point now and it's there in the statistics so in the 2019 census women over 40 started earning more money than women under 40 for the first time ever Mm. and now what that really shows is there's a whole generation of women who've entered the workforce you know when they left university or when they went into work and have stayed there um, throughout and therefore they're coming into this midlife moment saying, well, we're not going to disappear. We've actually got quite a lot of financial clout. We're used to being listened to. We have agency over our lives. Mm. And also, I think, a lot of women thinking, well, the structures that I've been in, if that's a corporate job or, you know, publishing or like me, I was in the media, um, they stop really allowing us to express all that we want to express. So I see many women going, okay, I'm now going to go alone. I'm going to set up my own thing. I'm going to use my own voice. And the fantastic thing about the internet is that you don't need those old gatekeepers in order to reach an audience. You can sing your own song of yourself and get it out there without it having to be mediated through a whole load of you know, old blokes who don't necessarily um, (laughs) agree. (laughs) And what I've been very passionate about for a long time is um, what I call challenging the male lens that particularly the media puts on our society. Um, I was the editorial director of the Sunday Times, the editor of the Sunday Times magazine, chair of women in journalism for seven years. Mm. And in those roles, I really had an up-close and personal look at how the mainstream media in our country and the world operates and basically the the lens that it puts on society is very much a 
a kind of old white male view and that values women primarily for their fancy ability and their fecundity mm-hmm. and therefore when women become um, slightly less pleasing to men both kind of uh, physically and I think in t- temperamentally as we get a bit older <laughs> s- suddenly the less pleasing women are kind of are thrust out of those organizations but for me that is a factor of who's doing the looking. You know, we're not we're, we're not being pushed out of our own lives. We're not being, we still have huge value and so much to offer. So I think we need to change the story that we tell about the later stages of women's lives to one more fit for purpose. And which also doesn't say to the women coming up that at this point they disappear and they're no longer valuable. Mm. I think that really matters. Mm. Um, and I've seen in my lifetime, the stories that we tell around race and around um, homosexuality really change and for me the final frontier of feminism is this whole thing around gendered ageism where sexism meets ageism and the penalty that women pay in our society because of that male lens Mm. well i am a white old man (laughs) very annoyingly but are we going to turn the tables in as much as i hope that most of this podcast will be a white old man listening to a woman (laughs) Oh well, that's you know that's always welcome. It could be a first. No, you're, you're, there are of course there are there are lots of you know nice men who don't have that view. What I'm talking about is the kind of patriarchal structures system yeah. that we still live in, and how that affects the way that we perceive ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and as chair of women in journalism, I commissioned a lot of research which was looking at the way women are caricatured in newspapers yes. or how they're represented. We did a report called the Tycoon and the S. Scored. And actually, that was about uh, just a businessman who'd had an affair with a colleague, but he was called a tycoon and she was called an escort. Um. So there are these kind of weird labels that get attached to what women do. I, I was very annoying when I was a newspaper executive because every time I looked at a news list, I'd say, well, where are the women with agency doing something in their own right? Every woman on the news list would be a victim or arm candy. Um, and I would say, no, that's not right. And I wanted to challenge what I saw in newspapers, which is very much using images of women to what they called freshen up a page <laughs> um, or brighten it up, love. That would mean like putting a picture of a pretty girl. And that mm. that kind of mentality is still everywhere. And we see it with the kinds of women who we're shown. Um, the, the only women that we're allowed to see who are older on our screens or in our newspapers are usually ones who look freakishly young. Yes. You know, whether that's kind of Carla Bruni or Hel- Helen Mirren in a bikini, you know, that's not what most 80-year-olds look like or, no. or 54-year-olds. So I think it's also really important to challenge that. We're quite happy to look at pictures of men, you know, older men appear on our screens with kind of jowls and beer bellies and everyone thinks that's that's fine. But the kind of standard of pulchritude expected of a woman who opines in public is, you know, ludicrous. And yeah. what's that for? That That is to satisfy the male gaze. That's not about the value of the content. Yes. Well, it's about time, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, and I actually, think it's it, about time. This is a revolution we need. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it, for me, nearly everybody I know who's a man now, to a large extent, depends on their wife's income. Yes, and well, it's, I've that's been a the, very common thing now. No, I've, I've been the breadwinner in my family mm. um, all my life. And I feel really proud of my husband that he has taken on a very um, supportive role. He does all the shopping. He, you know, does all the cleaning. He did lots of the actually being at home. He was work from home. He's an online editor. He used to work for Google and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. he was the parent who was at home. If someone needed to take a day off to take the kids to the doctor, it was him who did that. Because yes. I had to go to work, so I had to pay the mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I think it takes a very strong, actually, and quite brave kind of man um, to do that. It was interesting. Just before I came up here, I had dinner with my husband and his oldest friend, who is also married to um, a very... She's an amazing woman in the theatre. He runs kind of theatre. And she, he really looks after her. Mm. And they were talking about it. And I was saying to them how much I appreciated, you know, what they did, because they've definitely taken quite a lot of stick, particularly from other men at various points in their lives, for not... Um, adhering to the kind of paradigm of male success and they're both you know highly intelligent and quite kind of alpha men in their own way but mm. they chose a different path and if we want women to be able to behave differently we also have to really support and praise I think the men who allow us to do that yes but, but I hope that's me <laughs> well you know <laughs> you're know. having me on this but podcast my, so I'd say wife, that was a good start my wife is um, when we were young and we had children very young my mm. wife was only 21 when I first child was born and then after about a couple of years she said I can't talk about nappies anymore mm. I want to go and do some studying so she went back and did her A-levels and then she did a degree and then she did a PhD and so she's a doctor of science she's an extremely capable person now does extraordinary things and uh, it's never been any doubt in my mind that she's far more intelligent <laughs> and capable than I am <laughs> but I think it I think it's a lot of men still feel quite threatened by a woman who is like that. I mean, I think it's, we need to talk much more in our society about those different kinds of couples or what women can be like so mm. that the new generation don't feel they have to adhere to a kind of old kind of gender stereotype. And what I see, which I find quite depressing, is younger women saying, well, I thought that I was in quite an equal marriage. In fact, someone just said this to me literally 10 minutes ago. I thought I was in quite an equal marriage, but now that we've had kids, I feel like a 50s housewife. Wow, and yeah. I think that there is still that kind of shift back into those roles once children appear. Mm. But, uh, but then that doesn't have to be destiny. What I'm also really interested in, in my Queenager cohort, and we've actually done the biggest study, proper research study on these women, that we find that nearly 30% don't have children. Right. So 30% of university-educated women now in the UK, age 45 to 60, don't have kids. Mm. And nearly half of them have chosen not to. But you never see that narrative reflected, you know, more broadly in the media. And no. I think that there are a lot of women who kind of are made to feel less than because they haven't had children. And actually, they're completely normal within our generation. But the, the kind of broader cultural narratives have not caught up. So that's where I really think we need a reappraisal of what women's lives are for, particularly that later decade, the only real depiction we see of older women is as kind of grandmothers, mm -hmm. or those dreadful insurance ads where you have the kind of silver couple walking down the beach holding hands. You know, <laughs> if like 40% of these women aren't with a partner and nearly 30% don't have kids, then all those stories need massively updating. And I think mm. that that would also make so many more people feel feel better about their lives. This is yeah. this is really what it's for for me. It's not like a kind of um, ideology kind of over here. It's about real people feeling there's a systemic problem here, and what happens is that people feel it's their fault, their problem, and actually it's something that society in a much wider way is doing to them by telling you know out of date stories. Yes. I'm aware <laughs> constantly of failing in that attempt. You know? <laughs> I'm I, sure it, you're just not the failing. other night, my mother-in-law, who <laughs> lives with us, praised me for cooking dinner, and my, and my wife said, "Excuse me, 
And she went, what? She said, I cook every other night. And she said, well, that's what you do. And I, you know, I immediately went... Uh, don't, think, don't think so, Mum. No, but th there are lots of those attitudes out there, but in the same way that there were lots of really dodgy attitudes around race or around homophobia yeah. and they're now not acceptable, I think that we have to have the same kind of shift and for it to be seen as old-fashioned and as unsayable as certain things that people used to say about race or homosexuality now are. I think that this ageism piece, particularly gendered ageism, is a real you know, next frontier that needs to be addressed because mm -hmm. it has real kind of real-world effects. Yes. Well, let's find out <laughs> how you got to this point by looking at things you choose from your life to put in a time capsule. OK, I found this really hard, actually. Did I have you? to say, yeah, it was quite difficult because it's also kind of a bit nebulous. I hope my, I hope my choices are OK. No, that's fine. <laughs> it is deliberately like that, I'm afraid. <laughs> so the first thing I'm going to put in my time capsule is a black and white portrait of Mikhail Gorbachev, which appeared in the Sunday Times um, years ago when I interviewed him. And I went along to do the interview and the photograph was taken by an amazing female photographer called Sally Soames, who was a real pioneer um, and took incredible photographs of artists and writers and politicians for the national press back in the kind of 70s and 80s when there really weren't that many female photographers. Mm. And I went to interview Mikhail Gorbachev in Claridge's and we were upstairs in this tiny room. There were about, there was him and me and Sally and then about four or five other kind of hangers-on, including two different interpreters. And in order to get this photograph, and it's a really iconic photograph, it's been in loads of books, I was holding a black coat <laughs> behind his head for the backdrop <laughs> and Sally always shot in natural light so it's this amazing portrait but it wasn't taken in a studio with like millions of assistants it was literally taken you know on a black and white film in a camera in this room in Claridge's with me holding the the thing behind it so I'm choosing that because a it reminds me of my time um I was the main interviewer on the paper so every week I'd go and see a kind of huge figure of everyone from the Dalai Lama to you know I know David Cameron Theresa May wow. Charlton Heston you know, Gary Lineker. I mean, I did all sorts of crazy people. So it reminds me of that time. But yeah. it also reminds me of Sally, because we were really quite the odd couple. I was um, probably about 26, 27. I was very kind of blonde and buxom. And Sally was in her 60s then. And I would have to kind of carry her stuff because her knees had gone from running around wearing high heels, carrying cameras all the time. <laughs> and uh, so we kind of looked like this odd couple. And we'd turn up and I think everyone really underestimated us because I look like this kind of, you know, young young girl. And, they, and at that point, they were a bit like, well, what does she know? And it would be brilliant to then come in with a really hard question. And they'd mm. suddenly be like, crikey, you know, she's not <laughs> messing around. And Sally would take these incredible pictures. So I love that. I love that image of us there. And also Mikhail Gorbachev. I'm always asked, you know, who was the most amazing person you ever interviewed? And Gorbachev just had the most incredible charisma. Mm. I would have, you know, I, even talking to him through an interpreter, I would have run back to Russia with him, you know, if he'd asked. He was amazing. And so having met him, then you really un begin to understand some of that whole kind of glasnost and the perestroika yeah. and particularly with all the stuff going on in Ukraine now it just feels pertinent so I would have that in my time capsule just because it it's a wonderful picture but it also really reminds me of a certain time and place yeah it's astonishing how close he came to changing the world exactly oh. yeah and and also when you met him you kind of understand why he got so close mm. because he really did have this just amazing kind of warmth and energy yes. 
And you, you're aware of the resistance there must have been in Russia at the time to this change. I mean, he... But you can see that fear still now driving yeah, the whole and, economy. And, and and exactly, and the switch back to Putin and that kind of authoritarianism and the rolling back of everything he stood for, and also how reviled he is in Russia. Right. They hate him. They see him as the man who lost the Soviet Union. Mm. So anyway, that, that for me is just a, like a little kind of collision of, you know, me into this, the kind of the bigger world. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, and better than Charlton Heston, I think. Oh, Charlton Heston was pretty weird. <laughs> it was pretty weird and all the uh, kind of National Rifle Association stuff. I know. And it was all that stuff about, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, people holding guns. That you, you yes, know. quite. So that was, uh, that, was, that was quite an encounter. Lovely. And, and so, <laughs> Sally, tell me about her career. Do you know more about that? Uh, well, she took loads of pictures of people like Ted Heath and Thatcher. She was the um, kind of Sunday Times' official photographer right. really quite early on and under Andrew she died a couple of years ago. Eve Pollard was her sister-in-law. She was married really? to Eve Pollard. She was um, the sister of Eve Pollard's first husband. Right. And so she's Claudia Winkleman's aunt. And really also one of those pioneering women. Totally who just pioneering. Went into world. That was yeah. so dominated by men. Completely. And she was, she was an amazing person. I'll never forget her. We went to interview Gary Lineker. And Sally really always had a penchant for a rather beautiful man. <laughs> so we went and she was just sitting there stroking his arm. And I was like, so I was like I'm really sorry, Gary, do you mind? He, he just thought it was funny. But she was like stroking him like a cat because she thought he was so <laughs> handsome. So she, was, she had a wonderful way of kind of putting people at their ease. Yeah. And she she would suddenly say kind of so tell me about your kind of most terrible moment and their face would kind of fall and then she'd get them kind of so she had some tricks she, oh, was, she skill, was great the, the skill of yeah. catching that moment and knowing that's the moment to yeah. click yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not like now with a digital camera you can go click 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 no 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 she and she would always know exactly when she got the shot and sometimes she would only take 10 or 15 frames amazing but she'd know exactly what she was after and what she was getting and it was all about the light Mm. I think I can picture that picture as well. I yeah. think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, I've got a it copy is... in my hall uh, and, I, and she signed it for me. So for me, it's really special because it's a fantastic. kind of bit of her as well. Brilliant. OK, well, we'll put that in as the first item then. <laughs> yeah, OK, that's number one. So that's the first good thing. Yeah. You've got three more good things and one thing you want to get rid of. OK, in so... In any order you want. OK, so the second thing is um, this gold chain that I wear every day, which came from my grandmother and... Um, my grandmother studied chemistry at Oxford in the 1930s. Wow. And my mother also went to Oxford and studied law. And I went to Oxford and read English at Brasenose. And my daughter has just finished her first year at Oxford. Oh, brilliant. In my old college. So it's a, this is a bit of a humble brag. But I also think we're incredibly unusual to have had four generations of Oxford women. And I wrote about this in one of the newspapers last year. And I said, is there anyone else out there who's in the same situation? And nobody, nobody got in touch with me. So part of the reason I want to mention this is if you've got four generations of Oxford or Cambridge women in your family, please get in touch. Because yeah. I, I think it's something that would make an amazing kind of book or bigger story at some point. Oh, it really would, and wouldn't it? Because actually those women who, at the beginning of that, yes. they were extraordinary, weren't they? Yeah, she was She was extraordinary, my granny. And one of the best things about her is she left at the end of her second year because she met my grandfather and they got married. And she always used to say, darling, I never regretted it. <laughs> <laughs> Which was funny. So there's also a kind of real shift in attitudes to kind of women's education and, you know, what you were kind of allowed 
allowed to do mm. as an educated woman, I think is kind of told through the story of those four women in my family. So my granny went there and was really pioneering, but really what she wanted to do was to get married and have a family. Right. She did the Times crossword right up to the very end of her life. And she was super bright. She read everything. She read the Spectator cover to cover every week. And, yeah. you know, she was, she was always super engaged in everything. And then my mum... I remember my mum was telling me that when she left Oxford, she divorced my my dad very young and she tried to get a mortgage on the house and she couldn't get a mortgage in her own name. Oh. It had to be guaranteed for her by a man. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's in our, you know, that's in my lifetime. Yeah. So I speak a lot now... Um, I go and speak to a lot of women's networks and things and I, I, and a lot of younger women. I set up a big mentoring scheme when I was chair of women in journalism. And one of the things I always say is that this whole kind of gender revolution is in progress. One of the lies I think that women are told all the time is that, is that things are fixed or that we have equality. Mm. And we're so far from that. And so I'm, I'm interested in that. If you think women got the vote 100 years ago, that's kind of around when my grandmother was born. Mm. And now my um, daughter at Oxford has had a completely different experience from the one that I had because there are now pictures of women on the walls. She's got a female tutor she's actually engaged with as somebody who has an interesting mind that needs developing. And when I was there, I felt that I was there very much on sufferance. You know, they'd let women into the men's colleges about seven years before I got there. Mm. And there was a sense that, well, you're here, aren't you? You know, you have equality because we've allowed you in. But you (laughs) didn't feel like you were really supposed to be there. There were no women kind of on any walls. I had a male tutor who used to write me love poems and was basically more interested in posing in a velvet jacket and taking pictures of himself Uh, than he was in actually being at all interested in what I was interested in. Yes, or your opinion. (laughs) Yeah, so those kind of four generations for me mark a bit of a shift. And we're not there yet, but I do feel for my daughter... Things are a bit better. The college also is now 86% state school, whereas yeah. when I was there, it was probably the other way, private school. There were more Etonians on my corridor than there were kind of anything else. <laughs> um, so I think that that has really shifted. So it's, it's interesting to see in one's lifetime how change is possible. And that gives me hope that we can also change the agenda when it comes to the, the queen ages. Yes. And, and what does your teenager daughter do? Um, she's reading English as well. Reading English as yeah, well, yeah. In my old college, which is really weird. I had Amazing. To, I went up there um, in the autumn term because she got a really bad chest infection. I mean, all these freshers, they got there and everyone at university had been in lockdown for three years. So the years above hadn't had a freshers week. They mm. hadn't been able to go clubbing. So they all got up to university. And I think they, they all went crazy because it was like three years were all let out on the loose at once. And so I think it was a pretty wild hedonistic time. Anyway, my daughter got a terrible chest infection <laughs> and she rang me up saying, I can't get out of bed. So like I only live in London. So I zoomed down there, slightly helicopter mum, and took her to the John Radcliffe to get some antibiotics because she was really sick. And they thought she might have meningitis. Mm. And so we ended up back in her college at one in the morning because um, it was too late to go back anywhere else. So I slept on her floor, which was so weird because it was just yards from the room that I'd slept in myself as wow. a student. And there was just this weird, I mean, you get that anyway as you get older, that kind of strange, a kind of vertigo about time when you kind of think, wow, have I kind of really been here this long? Yeah. And so I had this weird sense of almost being in a time kaleidoscope, sleeping on my daughter's floor in my old college, an old boyfriend of mine had had a room up, up just upstairs from her so and then to make it even weirder I walked out into the quad and 
I bumped into a guy who'd been my contemporary, who'd gone back there to take his kid back, you know, just completely randomly. But that felt, there were so many ghosts of all the people that I used to know there that it felt completely real to kind of normal to see him there. But of course it was kind of weird. So there was just, there were all these sense of this kind of spiraling of time Mm. and experience. Yes. In a good way too. I feel super proud of her. Oh, lovely. I I did my first Shakespeare play in Brazenose College. There you go. In the grounds. So I also had a funny thing. So I was wandering around looking like a tramp because I literally slept in the clothes I'd been wearing the day before. (laughs) And someone said to me, oh, there's a thing about you in the JCR. And I was like, what, really? And they went, yeah, yeah, they've done a list of amazing women from Brazenose. And they said I was on the list and I hadn't seen it. So I thought, oh, well, I better go and have a look. But the JCR was locked, so I was banging on the door and these kind of undergraduates let me in. And I literally looked like a homeless person because I was carrying a duvet and kind of pillows and my hair was kind of looking crazy. And I was going, honestly, you can let me in. I'm on the, I'm on the list. <laughs> I'm on the wall. So I had, that was another kind of, you know, weird thing. Check but, the name. Check yeah, the check name. Yeah, check the name. I know I don't really look like I should be, but honestly, I am. And so my mum was here. And my grandmother. Yeah, and my granny. So we, yeah. we belong, honestly. So I know. <laughs> so the gold chain was hers? Was it? it was hers. It was given to her by my grandfather. Oh. The kind of family joke goes that he was, he'd kind of forgotten to buy her a present and he was outside Fortnum's or something after lunch and bought a rather blingy piece of uh, jewellery. But yeah. I quite like it. She always used to wear it and I feel like it's a kind of protection. Mm-mm. But like you say about men learning that actually it's fine to do these other roles in life, it's interesting because all the women I know from those generations that I've ever met mm. who made those decisions, family decisions, yeah. and, and in a way gave up their own to a large extent, personality almost, yeah. you know, they, they gave up everything that they could be. Yeah. And I don't remember many of them being annoyed that that had happened. They, they seemed satisfied with it. And in fact, that it was actually really quite rewarding to look after a family. Up to a point. To a point I, I would I, what I would say about that is that they, having made that choice... It's then quite hard to say, actually, my whole life has been, yeah. you know, a disaster. I should have made another decision, yeah, 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 you know. Quite. So, um, and of course, my you granny, don't know anything else. So you've no, been and my, my granny was amazingly supportive and proud of the fact that I'd become a journalist and I kind of did all the stuff. Mm. And I always thought that the huge pleasure she took in that was maybe a bit vicarious because she knew that yes. she should have. That she could easily have done yeah, it. Yeah, that it could have been her. Mm. So I think it's slightly bittersweet on that front. Yeah, I didn't mean it in the sense that it was fine for just for women that actually that men should take the lesson from it yeah no no no, I I think so but I also think that it's I mean it would be quite hard for them to say kind of anything else about the choices that they made yes at that point yes I love the idea of having something about you that belonged through the generations like that yeah it feels like it tells a a kind of powerful story about identity but also about change and the possibility of change Mm. yes very good All right, that goes in as a second item (laughs) lovely Right, I don't know. What's next? Right, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I'm afraid we have to interrupt it for some adverts, but we will rejoin Eleanor very soon. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to part two of My Time Capsule with the journalist Eleanor Mills. Let's find out what else she would like to put in her time capsule. Okay, so the third thing is a rose quartz ball. So it's like a crystal. Mm. Um, And my husband gave me this crystal before I gave birth to my first daughter because it signifies love and healing. And I held it all the way through my labour with my daughter and also when I gave birth again to my second daughter. So, Mm. And it sits on the windowsill in my bedroom and I meditate every morning and I look at this, this rose quartz. And for me, just thinking about it actually makes me feel quite emotional. It's, it really signifies for me that encounter with what I call the, the astral portal, where the kind of membranes of our worlds become thin and, you know, life can kind of come in and out. And you get that feeling again, I think, when, when somebody dies. Mm. Or I think also you get it, um, I've done some kind of psychedelic experiences in a therapeutic way. I had a friend who was very um, depressed and we went to Jamaica where it's legal and took psilocybin, kind of magic mushrooms, kind of big doses. There's lots of research now which shows that actually that is one of the best cures for depression. This Michael Pollan book and all the research at Imperial College. And I think that there's also that sense when you've taken (laughs) a lot of psilocybin (laughs) that you're um, also in this kind of this place where the kind of membranes of reality and possibility become very thin and things can kind of come in and out of it. So for me, that that symbolises a kind of, maybe a kind of gateway to a larger kind of more spiritual realm, which as I get older becomes more and more important to me. Mm. But also the place at the heart of my life, which is love, gratitude, just that sense of things being kind of passed down and to have got through those places kind of unscathed mm. and blessed, you know. Yeah. So that sounds a bit kind of hippie. And a lot of people who who know me or certainly would know me in my past life <laughs> would not expect to hear any of that from me at all. <laughs> but that's partly why I want it in the time capsule because as I think one of the things that happens when you become a queen age or when you go into this midlife shift mm. is that I think... What's nice is that there can be a possibility of living and being something new, 
you know, that, that our lives, it's like you've been on a kind of gorge on a train track and that you can kind of change the track. You know, you can yeah. you can really go off in a, in a different direction. And yeah, so and for not me, just into the sidings. No, not into the sidings, on, on a whole new adventure in a kind of whole new train, thinking a whole new way. Mm. And that's really what I'm trying to talk about at noon and what, what the whole essence of Queen Ageredom is about, is that you can have been kind of on these tracks. You know, and I think in a way the age is from 25 to 50, I talk about that as the ages of achievement. It's kind of when we're ticking off all the things that we were conditioned and told we were supposed to want. You know, kind of, I know, worldly success, a house, maybe a family, Mm. husband, you know, all the things that you kind of get from your family about this is what your life is supposed to be. Um, And for me, there's been an immense sense of freedom in that whole bit kind of coming to an end um because I was made redundant from my job at the Sunday Times um after 23 years so that was a bit like a bereavement in that there was a time before and a time after oh that's brutal yeah it was really brutal it was really brutal but actually I now think it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I'm so much happier now two years on than I was when I was there and I feel so free and able to really talk about the things that I care about in a way that makes sense to me. And I wake up every day feeling really excited about what I'm doing and about what I can write and just about having found a really much more truthful voice. Mm. So I've been, you know, talking and broadcasting and banging on about stuff for years, but I really feel that since I've left that kind of corporation I can be much more essentially me and I see that in so many I talk to so many other women who've made that shift who've set up their own things so that they can really do what they want to do because they couldn't within these old structures and so that's another thing that I really talk about kind of at noon and I try and encourage women to do which is to say you can take all those skills and experiences and all the good stuff and the network and all the good stuff from your old life and now refashion a next chapter for yourself, which is really about you. It's that I start off by saying that I think that being a queen age, becoming 50 is when you become the person you're supposed to be. Mm. And I think that actually that's something that we should really be talking about as a society, about if we're all going to live till, you know, 90, 100. And I call my site noon because in the 100-year life, 50 is halfway through. Yeah, it's quite. And so if we're all going to live that long, we're all going to move through different phases. We're going to have to shift from what we were into something else. And so those periods of transition and the skills which are required to make those transitions and what we need, I think is a really interesting conversation. And definitely what you need in that is, is kind of, you know, love and a kind of strong centre, but also a new tribe who kind of maybe see you in a new way and can come with you. Um, And a quite good bit of introspection where you really work out what your essential nature is. You mm. know, we were talking in the Queen Ager session this morning um, here at Prima Donna Festival about what are the things maybe that you really wanted to do when you were 18? What were those really kind of essential, important things to you and how we lose sight of that? Mm. And one of the women was talking about going back to live in the place where she'd lived before here in Suffolk and how she suddenly felt back in touch with this much more kind of dreamy, grounded, both dreamy and grounded kind of person that she had been. Mm. And I think there's also a thing at this point of stripping away, shedding a lot of the things that we no longer need 
and then and moving into something new and that that being really exciting but i don't i don't see anyone talking about that in the wider culture and yet i think it's such an essential conversation if we're all going to live for you know for much longer mm. um, and i also think that that transition time can happen at various different points in your life it's not yeah. just at this one but we all need to think about what muscles or things that we need to make those transitions possible yes it's interesting that you say that you haven't really spoken about those things for a long time when you're mm. in that corporate world yeah but clearly your husband knew that about you because yes, he bought you that a, crystal well he's a hippie <laughs> i met are. my husband um in india on the hippie trail when <laughs> i was 26 um and he's a juggler so right. he, they, I mean, there was always that part of me, but that part of me had to be quite kind of tamped down yeah. in kind of, you know, don't corporate tell, work. Don't tell them at work. Yeah, but I think mm. it's more than that. I think that I was, you know, extremely privileged. And I went to St Paul's Girls School and then to Westminster and mm. then to Oxford. So I had this like supercharged education, but it was all about enlightenment thinking it's about completely being in this bit of your brain logical what's logical and then I was a journalist for years which is all about ripping apart arguments what are the facts what's the killer fact here what does this mean mm. and so I was always trained to be massively suspicious of anything that was you know otherworldly or more kind of emotionally based or everything in the way that I was educated was devaluing those different ways of knowing yes um, and I feel that what I've really found in my later years which I kind of always knew was important but was kind of much more peripheral in my life is now much more kind of center stage and yeah. you kind of go back to something a bit more essential but I don't think we talk at all about those different ways of knowing or how important they are intuition instinct what you feel in your body um how you really engage with the kind of deepest bit of yourself, which is where the capacity to change comes from. And everybody's aware of that elasticity of the world and time mm. particularly. It's only, as you say, when you become aware of something like being in your daughter's college and thinking, yeah. oh, what, is it really that long? Is that, yes. It doesn't feel that long at all. Yes. And then time is not what we're told it is. It's something completely different. I went to a party just yesterday with the husband of a, a couple, they lived right with us when we were, had small children and uh, they lived next door mm. and we were very close to them and then his wife died when she was 50 mm. from breast cancer and it was really devastating and my wife still to this time can't talk about it without crying. Yeah. It upsets her so much and it's very raw Yeah, but it's 17 years ago. Mm. But there are those kind of vortexes in our lives which suck us straight back into kind mm. of where we were. And I, I completely agree that there are kind of emotional emotional kind of cruxes whose kind of potency never diminishes. And yeah. so if you think of time much more like a spiral where we kind of go back to the same yeah. things. And I, I had a, a, one of my um, best friends died when I was 17 and I miss him, you know, still constantly. It was, it was funny, I was in, um, I took my younger daughter to Greece mm. and the last time I'd been to Mycenae I had been with my friend Matty when we were 17 just before he died and going there I cried the whole way up there it was so weird so the fact that it's so long ago doesn't make no. it less painful and in fact sometimes these things with the passing of time become worse because you just realize you know when I got married when I had my first child all those things you think well that this person should be there mm -hmm. and they're not yeah. so it actually in some ways makes it worse 
I've done this in reverse, just once. <laughs> I, 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 I did an episode of this where I was interviewed by uh, oh. Richard Herring, interviewed me and asked what my things would be. OK, good. And I yeah, that's good. very confidently started talking about a, a friend of mine who's no longer with us because I wanted to talk about him and, yeah. I, you know, how much I loved him. And, uh, and I tried... And I just, it was almost impossible. I, I fell apart. Yeah. But those are the kind of real emotional kind of cruxes of our lives. I've been trying to write a novel. And actually what you realise when you try to do that is those are the moments, you know, those are the kind of stepping stones which actually make up the bits of experience that are, are worth talking about, yeah. you know, as it were. Yeah. Yes, well, that lovely orb, I love the idea of you holding it all the way through the birth yeah, of both children. Yeah, you know, I really did. I really did, Amazing. like, kind of gripping onto it. The, the orb and the gas and air were definitely my friend. Um. Yeah. <laughs> all right, then. Let's put that fantastic orb into the time capsule. So we've got one good thing and one bad thing to go. OK. Mm. So I found the bad thing quite difficult. Mm -hmm. So I'll do the bad thing, then I'll come on to the good thing. Yeah. So the bad thing is it's kind of... It's it's kind of it's not really a bad thing. So when I was younger, I did quite a lot of. Um, I was part of that generation that hit the kind of first house music and the kind of um, acid house and all that kind of stuff. So I think it would be very unfair for me to talk about my life and not mention my you know that that kind of raving time, mm. which was massively formative for so many. I think in my generation, and I spent many happy evenings jumping around kind of um, <laughs> off my head on ecstasy and leaping around on hay bales and all that kind of thing. But during that time, I had this um, bum bag, what the Americans would call a fanny pack, <laughs> which was um, which I bought in Indonesia when I was travelling and which always used to have... Because when you're raving, you don't want to be carrying a bag or anything, so you just have this no. thing tied around your stomach. And so it used to come with me on... When I went travelling, it was always with me, and when I went raving, it was always there. Mm. So it was this rather ugly kind of appliqued kind of <laughs> bag that I bought in Indonesia, which had like a plastic back and a zip. But it was a really... In the time capsule, I think it would have to be there, but it probably isn't something that needs to be brought out too much anymore. <laughs> so it kind of represents a period of my life, which is really important, but and which is one about real kind of freedom and adventuring. And I went off around the world a lot, kind of with my backpack. It was actually how I met my husband. And, mm. you know, so it, it represents a time of real freedom and fun and hedonism and joy, which I think is also very important to know when that moment has slightly passed. Yes. You don't, you don't want to be the kind of oldest raver in town. And I was always rather envious of that crowd because <laughs> I was, you know, too old to be doing it, I think. You know. I was right in the middle of it. I mean, I was like 18 when it kind so of I've all I've never hit. taken ecstasy and I really don't know why. <laughs> well, you know, definitely worth trying once. <laughs> <laughs> and they put such appalling publicity for it, didn't oh, they? Oh, God, Immediately. yeah, you, you'll was, die. You, people, everybody's dying. You take it and drink a bottle of water, you're dead. Yeah, no, which, which didn't seem to be the case. No. Sorry, you know, drugs uh, are bad, of course, but um, well, it, was, it, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. But why? Is it? Why is it? it? You know, I mean, in fact, it may be, it's certainly a far better drug to be taking than a lot of alcohol. Well, alcohol, I mean, Dr. David Nutt, who's the professor at Imperial, who's the real man on kind of drug risk, mm. he was famously fired, wasn't he, for saying that um, taking ecstasy was much less dangerous than, you know, eating peanuts or going horse riding or drinking, yes. um, which, you know, statistically is the case, or smoking or any <laughs> of those things. So it's not something I do anymore, but it does kind of represent a, a period in my life. Mm. 
And actually, when we went out to Jamaica and we did the psilocybin, one of the trips that I had was like I was back in one of those raves in the early 90s, just like a <laughs> sense of total euphoria. So I just think it's, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in joy <laughs> and fun and yeah. the kind of connecting power of that. So I think it would be wrong to have a time capsule which didn't include no, no, it's a go in there. Even, me. No matter how ugly that bum bag is, it's got to go in there. I think so, but it can probably be like buried. And, but, you know, of course, <laughs> like most people at that age, you probably thought, oh, my God, Imagine wearing that out, that awful comeback. <laughs> yeah. You know, what was I thinking? I must have looked awful. But, of course, at that age, you would have looked glorious. Yeah, and, and also I didn't care because it was really practical. But mm. I also think there's something in that that um, when I look at my daughters and stuff now, they, there's a much more kind of hyper-sexualised aesthetic. Uh. When we were all jumping around in our trainers and our kind of, you know, old granddad shirts and, like, baggy tracksuit bottoms and stuff, it was a much more unisex aesthetic yeah. that, that's kind of Cardassian, Love Island kind of look now, I think, is much less freeing so yeah. i think i think in some ways we've kind of gone backwards a bit on there have been know, on some areas in which have been backward steps i yeah. think without a doubt yeah. yes and, we didn't and that is one of them i think the reintroduction of the fashion of all wearing false eyelashes is really strange well all of that it's but it, that's to do with the total relentless focus of social media yeah. so those kids i can see it with my daughters they're just constantly ready for their close-up you know, and that's the explosion of all that kind of contouring makeup and that kind yeah. of thing. So I think we were quite blessed in a way that we didn't have that constant pressure and presence of the camera. Mm. I think we were much freer. And I think particularly when it comes to sex, one of the things that I talk about a lot is I've campaigned a lot as a journalist around internet pornography. Mm. And I think that for our generation, there wasn't that sense of what it was supposed to look like. No. It was just about kind of how it felt. And, you know, most women were pretty happy just to have a real girl kind of in bed with them. Whereas yeah. now I think there's this huge sense of, you know, what does it look like? And I speak to a lot of young women for whom sex is a very kind of performative thing. Wow. rather than actually about how it feels or their own entitlement to an orgasm or all of that kind of stuff. So I, yeah. I, I worry about that. Yes, no, I think um, the access to internet porn is really quite disturbing, isn't it? Particularly for young people. Young men. It's terrifying. I mean, they're being they pushed think... in the idea that they're supposed to be in charge of it. Whereas, well, in fact, you know... It... Well, no, it's much worse than that. I think it's that they, they're pushed into an idea that it's a kind of violent thing that you no, do yeah. to something. Mm. So I did a survey recently which showed that, um, you know, 99% of the, these girls aged between about 16 and 22 thought it was completely normal to be choked oh, when God. someone kissed them at a party and stuff. It was, I talk about that a lot, but um, that is a real real problem i think yeah because they're, they're learning about sex from porn and they think that porn is sex mm. and i would say it's like learning to drive by you know watching the fast and the furious mm. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't go well so anyway that's that's one of the other things that i feel really passionate about yeah no, i'm not glad to have shoehorned into this podcast <laughs> I, I, i'm absolutely happy for you to shoehorn it in i think it's um it is a real curse i think yeah and, and it's very difficult to work out how to limited how to persuade people that actually that's not what you're no and it, it has to be about a kind of my, my girls think i sound like such an old granny i would say you know it has to be about a connection actually if you have sex with someone that you really care about you know maybe love then mm. it's actually going to be better yeah so anyway, that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a whole other conversation okay we'll put it in there with a bum bag <laughs> yes. get rid of it yeah you know that that should definitely go that I mean, would be good that would be the thing that i would totally erase from our culture <laughs> if i could but luckily we have one more thing that you treasure so the other thing that i treasure it's funny i've, I've chose two bits of jewellery which I hadn't really thought of but this ring that I'm wearing is a big green it's a green tiger's eye and it's a very kind of um, distinctive design it almost looks like a heart with a big kind of gold thing around it and my stepfather who died 
um, over 20 years ago now, had it designed for me. He described me to an amazing jewellery designer who ran a company called Electrum, and she created this ring for me when I was 18. And I've worn it pretty well every day since. And it reminds me of my stepfather, who really brought me up. Mm. Um, But also it reminds me of a kind of essentialness in our nature that doesn't change. And that he had seen something in me then. He, he was a psychoanalyst. Uh, he was the head of the adult department at the Tavistock. And uh, my mum w- was always quite antisocial. So quite often when he, he had dinner parties when I was young, I would be the hostess <laughs> when I was about 10 or 11, 12. And I'd have to kind of talk to all these Lacanian kind of, you know, um, philosophers and psychoanalysts about kind of, you know, stuff. But I kind of, I, th- I always feel grateful to him because he could see that I was clever, I think. And he always encouraged me to read and he always encouraged me to to speak and was interested in what I had to say. Mm. And I think he saw that potential in me before I really kind of knew it myself. So I love the ring because it reminds me of him, but also about something in my essential nature that he kind of spotted and really nurtured. And I also think that step-parents get bad press. And um, my stepfather was the one who, if I had a nightmare, he was the one who interpreted it for me and calmed me down. If I was uh, out late at a party, it would be him who was sitting there in his Saab Turbo listening to Radio 4, pretty damn grumpy, but he was there and he would pick me up and bring me back. And I think some of us in the 70s had slightly chaotic kind of parenting. So for me, Peter was a real rock Mm. and my, my husband is very like him. Um, And so it it also represents a kind of, a kind of rock-like solidity of kind of love and care and support, which I've been lucky enough to have. And it's a gorgeous gift to be able to give a child that I think that go on, you can do it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And and it's funny, I don't think I did get that from my parents. What I got from my parents was much more, you will achieve, you know, what is valued is achievement. Yeah. And so I think that there was a, a calmer, more, if, if you think about it, like a, when you go down to a swimming pool and you kind of can push off up the bottom and you can come up again. I think mm. my stepfather gave me that sense of a kind of bedrock and my husband does too. Brilliant. So that's that rock kind of represents that. Yeah. Fabulous that, in fact, as a queenager, you've chosen two men <laughs> that have yes. been an important part of your life. Yeah, really. I've got six brothers as well, so I've always been kind of around a lot of men. And I also think that the reason why I survived so long on a very in a very macho newsroom um, was partly having been to a school like Westminster where I'd been in the belly of the beast of the patriarchy, kind of seen them, <laughs> looked them in the eye, kind of taken them on when I was very young. Yeah. And But I, I kind of tired of that. I think there's a... I think there's a a kind of complicity that you have when you're a woman in that kind of a macho world. But to begin with, it's quite exciting to be there, to be allowed in the Mm -hmm. room. There's a huge excitement. And to compete. Yeah, Yeah, to compete or to be able to compete kind of with them or just to be able to pull the levers. Yeah. You know, when I was first at the Sunday Times, the Sunday Times was creating the agenda. Mm. Before social media, you had to go through newspapers if you were going to speak to the world. Mm. So you were this incredibly important gatekeeper. But... I think that's now not the case. And I love the fact that we don't have to have those gatekeepers anymore in our society and that we can put out there different points of view. Um, And so I feel really passionately that my generation of women were very much a kind of, were quite transitional, that we were kind of told everything was sorted when it wasn't. And that this 
bit about the later bits of our lives is really unfinished business and it really matters and in a way it's the last bit of challenging the kind of the male lens Mm. and the way that we've been taught to think about ourselves and it goes really deep I was looking at a brownies guidebook that a friend I was at camping and my friend had her old brownies blanket which had all her badges sewn onto it and I was looking I was thinking this is really mad you know some of them are for like hostessing and things like that and we looked up the brownies um guidebook another friend of mine bought one and I was I was down I'm talking to her and we were looking at it and it's all things like you will have his supper waiting for him when he comes home you know how to make the perfect cup of tea for your husband how to make a cocktail I mean it's all about women should try their best brownies try their best brownies reach a kind of impossible standard but brownies never expect praise Mm. you know so you should never be kind of you should never be expecting kind of praise for what you've done or to be appreciated you should just like give constantly like service to everybody else and that was being a kind of good a good brownie, a good wife. Yeah. And basically it's patriarchal grooming. Mm-hmm. And I think that our generation has, that was in the 70s, so that's we were all given a shed load of that. And yet that's never really acknowledged when we're now all supposed to be kind of equal and taking people on in the workplace and speaking up for ourselves. So I think that there's a huge amount of unpicking of our own internalised misogyny which comes from the the male lens and the patriarchy that we need to do and what I see I I run retreats for my queen ages and what I see is lots of women feeling really a massive sense of lack or kind of sadness or that they're they're not enough and actually when you unpick it it's systemic it's not them it's how they've been made to feel and it's I think it's incredibly I've seen it liberating and transformational for women to realise that's not their own lack, that's something that we were all indoctrinated to feel. And when you realise that, there's a great freedom in being able to cast it off. Brilliant. So I think really helping people, and women particularly, unpick that allows them to move into, I hope, a kind of joyous queenagerhood where you really feel like you can get back to the essential essence of yourself. Fantastic. Yes. And I love the fact that the two men in your life that you've chosen are not anything like that. Um, They're not those patriarchs. No, 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 they weren't. And I think maybe that's why I also have the confidence to know that there are amazing men out there who support Mm. women. And also on this journey, we need them. It needs to be an inclusive thing. I mean, I hate a lot of the diversity conversation, which makes it kind of them and us. I hate the way that women are pitted against each other child-free or those with kids or you know mummies or not or just you know whatever is people who work people who don't I hate all of that I think that's Mm. really divide it's like a real divide and rule strategy yeah so I think we have to be gracious and accepting about people making different choices and not feel threatened by those Mm. and also really unpick where that comes from rather than fighting like cats in a sack kind of (laughs) undoing the sack and looking at who put us in there in the first place (laughs) wow brilliant (laughs) Eleanor what a joy it's been lovely to talk to you it's been lovely to hear the things you want to put a time capsule thank you so much for having me it's been great you have been listening to my time capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Eleanor Mills. My thanks to Eleanor and the organisers of the Prima Donna Festival for arranging this interview. I had great fun. If you did as well listening to it, then please subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to rate the show. You might even want to write a small review. 
Feel free to follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, where you'll be able to keep up with all the things we're up to and each of our guests as they pop up on the podcast. You can also contact us anytime you like and let us know about episodes you've particularly enjoyed and suggest possible future guests. That's always very helpful. The theme tune written by Past the Peas Music is available to download or stream, whatever that means, on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I've got to go. I've got an audition. I'm auditioning for the role of a puppeteer. I've not got a lot of experience in that area, but I think I can pull a few strings. Yes, all right, all right. Look, for you, this is just an hour of your life. For me, it's a bloody living. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.